everyone. Welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. I am your host, Christine. It's so nice to have you guys back. And I just want to give a shout out before we get started to everyone that's been reaching out to us and me specifically because this is me (laughs) on social media. It's really nice to hear from everyone that's listening. I really love all the feedback that I've been getting. I love talking to listeners on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And we're starting to grow the Facebook group. So there's the Facebook page, which is Antidote Stories in Medicine, but also the Facebook group, which is Antidote Stories in Medicine group. If you're on Facebook, go on over there and request to join the group. It's a closed group so that we can have a little bit more of an open conversation about some of the things that you hear on the podcast. And if you have any questions or any comments about like what you do in medicine, or even if you're not in medicine and you want to ask those questions, it's a more private place to do that. And we can kind of have some discussions. Some of the guests that have been on the show actually are in the group too, so you can ask them about their experiences if you've listened to their episode and just want to know a little bit more. They're all really nice, and I'm really lucky to have had them on the show. But a big part of why I wanted to do this little spiel before we get started with this week's episode is that if you share the podcast with people and if you review us, it helps the podcast get more visibility, especially the reviews. It gets us into the rankings on things like Apple Podcasts. This is a tiny little podcast and it's been really amazing that we've very briefly made it into like the top charts for like science and medicine and and medicine subcategories in a few different countries. It's really mind-blowing, but when you guys give reviews, that helps us stay there for longer so then more people can hear the podcast. And when they hear it and they reach out to me, then I always ask them, do you want to be on the podcast? Do you have any great stories from wherever you are in the world? So it helps for notoriety, but it helps me also interact with more people around the world and get more guests. So if you don't mind, I would really appreciate it if you gave us a rating, but also wrote a review because that really gives us a little bit of a boost so I can find more great guests for you guys. And and feel free to reach out to me too if you've got your stories. You can connect on social media. Antidotes Pod is the Twitter, or you can send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. I know a couple people have done that already, and I'm just very happy to talk to you. Even if you don't want to be on the podcast and you just want to have something to say, I always try and respond to everyone's messages. So I'm really happy to be talking to you guys. It's just awesome that there are people out there that are listening. All right. So my other thing that I want to talk about before we get going is Dan. You guys listened to Dan's episode last week. He is such a nice guy. He is doing the LLS Stair Climb, which is at the Columbia Center in Seattle. He's doing it in March. It's 69 flights of stairs. He's doing it in full bunker gear on air. And I could not do that at all without bunker gear, without being on air, with both of my good legs and being pretty good at physical health. I mean, he's doing it with a below-the-knee amputation, and you heard what it took for him to regrow part of his other leg. It's just really incredible. He's raised $610 right now. I donated $100. If you guys are listening to this podcast, I would love, 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 love for you to donate even just a little bit. And if you match what I donated, the $100 from all my podcast listeners, if you all match it, then I will donate an additional $50. And then we can at least get Dan a little bit closer to his goal of $1,800. So go to our Facebook page click on the link to Dan's LLS Stair Climb donation page and in your name somewhere put antidotes or podcast and make a donation. That way I know that this is how you heard about it and then I can count that towards the matching. 
actually Allison, who was on the Mistakes Will Be Made episode. She is not in the U.S. She wanted to donate towards a leukemia and lymphoma society in Australia. She wanted her money to go there and totally understand. And I really appreciate the donation because we just really want this to be about donations. So her donation absolutely counts towards the matching as well. So just let me know if you do something like that because you're in a different country. Totally get it. All right, that's my plug for for today. I will keep you updated on the progress of the donations. Leukemia and lymphoma, it's really tough, you know, as in primary care, I am usually the first person that sees their abnormal labs. You know, I see those blast cells on the peripheral smears and it's rough to have to walk patients and families through these diagnoses. And, you know, we need more money for research. Firefighters have a really high incidence of leukemia and lymphoma just because of the occupational exposure. Getting more money for research and treatment is really important. Dan's doing a really incredible thing for anyone, much less someone who's gone through what he has. So I really want to help support him. We are a wonderful community of firefighters, nurses, EMTs, first responders, and just people in general. So I know that we can really help support him in this goal. So So head on over to the Facebook page, look at my post. There's a link there. And if you are not sure where it is, you can always shoot me a message on social media too. And always look at the show notes wherever you're listening to your podcast. So, all right, that's my big spiel. That's all the housekeeping stuff. I'm always really terrible at doing housekeeping as a nurse practitioner. We're not supposed to be doing a lot of self-promoting. We're supposed to be asking other people about what they're doing and their problems and their concerns. So I'm so much better at the conversational part of this and talking to people as opposed to being like, hey, give me reviews and share my podcast and do this thing for me. So now let's get on to the part that I like much, much better, which is the conversation. So on to this week's episode. This week, you may have heard him on a different podcast, Pop Psych 101. This is Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for having me on. Ryan, tell everyone what you do. Sure. So my day job, my full-time job is... (laughs) As a licensed therapist by education, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, and I work as a therapist. I often have to clarify mental health therapist for some reason. Everyone always assumes physical therapist when I say I'm a therapist, but <laughs> but that's okay. So yeah, I'm a therapist. I work out of Princeton in a small nonprofit group practice sort of setup, and I work with people across the lifespan, really, with patients as young as 10, as old as, you know, 60s and 70s, focusing primarily on issues like depression, anxiety, grief and loss, you know, some some other more specific issues like trauma and relationship or, or couples counseling as needed. So that's that's my focus as my day job. It's great to have you on and be talking about mental health because we talk so much about the medical side of things in the medical world, but we always say whenever you go through nursing school is, oh, you think you're not going to be a psych nurse. Everybody's a psych nurse in the MS. (laughs) Everybody does mental health. I mean, there's, there's such a huge overlap into every single thing we do. There's such a psychosocial component that I think we don't get enough official training in it. And we certainly do not have enough mental health resources in primary care. I mean, I'm always looking for counselors. Sure. And and vice versa, you know, we uh, in the settings that I've been lucky enough to have nurses on staff, it's always a huge benefit. Whether it's you know consults or medication, all the different things that come up, so it's a, it's a mutual appreciation for sure. Yeah, you definitely need that collaborative approach when you're dealing with anything, but particularly mental health. So. I have this problem all of the time. Patients come in and I'll start them on medication if it's appropriate or something. And 
we say together, you should get therapy. And they go, great. I need a psychologist. And I go, how about a therapist? Sure. And they go, <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> so what is your explanation for the difference between a psychologist and a therapist? Sure. So psychologists, uh, and essentially, a, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of therapists too. Um, as I mm -hmm. mentioned, I'm an LCSW. There are LPCs or licensed professional counselors. There are psychologists. And the biggest difference is really just education background. You know, certain you know, job titles in the case of psychologists or psychologists require more extensive or more specific training. Whereas for me, as a licensed clinical social worker, um, or similarly for LPCs, licensed professional counselors, it sort of focuses on the job of counseling or the job of, for example, nonprofit, if that was a, an area of focus that you wanted to go mm -hmm. into. So for me, as you know, and I always explain this to my patients up front, you know, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. That means this was my focus education wise. You know, these are the areas that I specialize in because I think that conversation is really important to have up front because there are a lot of misconceptions right. and, and the differences between all these different things. Yeah. It's just like whenever someone comes in and sees me and says, oh, hi, doctor. And I go, no, I'm a nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. There are nurse practitioners that have doctorates. I am not one of them, but this is the difference in our role. Yeah, I have to I have to restrain myself from from correcting people to, when they address me as doctor. I'm just like, it's fine. If you want to call me doctor, I'll accept the the extra three years of education without the, you know, <laughs> with with the title. It's okay. <laughs> Because, you know, it's 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 nice. It's nice to be called doctor, but I also did not want to go to medical school for that reason. So, yeah, we legally have to correct people. No, I, very... I know I do. Of course I do. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying you don't. But it's like, I guess, especially where I'm working in such a close proximity to the With other the doctors. doctors, it's just it's so much more confusing. <laughs> what I'm saying is like. You legally have to correct people, right. uh, but then when you have some little old lady with dementia or someone that just does not know what a nurse practitioner is and they keep going, doctor, doctor, like you can't go, ma'am, legally, I have to correct you 7 million times until you get it right because yeah. they're just not going to. So you right. go, at a certain point, okay, you want to go to the treatment. That's right. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. I appreciate the respect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's not correct, but I, I thank you for trying. So you, how long have you been in practice for? How long have you been doing this? So I... I you know, I sort of start off that answer with I've been in the mental health field for over 10 years. I've been practicing individual therapy, so one on one primarily um, for the past, if I remember specifically, I'm going to say something in the realm of five years. Prior to mm -hmm. that, I've worked in inpatient units and outpatient units, whether that be intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization uh, treatment programs. So, only more recently have I been in the sort of private practice realm. What got you into being a therapist? What was the drive? Yeah, so you know, in a little in a little bit of ways, it's it's sort of the cliche of being in college, and you know, I want to help people. <laughs> I, I always knew that I wanted to major in psychology. You know, even going back to like grammar school, I was just always fascinated by how the brain works and sort of why people make decisions that they do and why people end up in situations that they end up in. Mm -hmm. So I was always fascinated by the behavior end of things. And then in college, I you know, started to notice that these different paths were available. You know, you could be a psychologist or psychiatrist and focus a lot on research, for example. I had a couple opportunities to do some research and I knew very quickly that I did not want to do research. 
<laughs> I knew that I, I wanted to be on the other sort of end of the spectrum, you know, the so-called front lines of, of treatment, of sort of intervening where these problems became noticeable for people. And I had an opportunity in between junior year and senior year of college to have a like a six-week crash course internship at a inpatient substance abuse facility. Oh, that must have been interesting. Oh, uh, it was... So interesting is one word. Uh, challenging might be another. You know, it it, yeah. it could have gone in so many different directions because yeah. of my experience there. But I will say that, you know, in the big picture, like seeing the process that people went through coming off the streets, coming out of jail, all these really, you know, serious situations, and then seeing them come out, whether it was after 30 to 90 days or four to six months in some cases where there was mm-hmm. long patient or long-term inpatient, which is, you know, becoming less and less common. It was just really fascinating and, and, and gratifying to see that people would take the time to do this work, both the patients themselves and the therapists to sort of, you know, forge these relationships and help people make the changes in their life that they wanted to make. So that, that was my initial experience. And that really confirmed things for me that I really wanted to be a therapist. Yeah, I worked, I did outpatient opioid addiction, well, just general substance use treatment for, it was my first nurse practitioner job. We focused primarily on opioid use disorder and it was very, very challenging and that's why I left it. But it is really rewarding when it's rewarding, but it's so challenging and I lived a little bit too close to where my patients lived and because it was outpatient, like some of them are on parole and I would see them at the supermarket and the ones that didn't like me would make sure that they knew, like that I knew that they saw me at the supermarket. So that was the whole boundaries thing was a little bit, a little bit hazy there and it was getting a little bit uncomfortable. So, but it was great. I mean, but it's also really stressful. So the people that do that every day, they're doing such important work. It, It just needs to be done. It couldn't be done by me at the time. Well, yeah. And, and I, you know, over the course of my career had a very similar experience. You know, I, I started in inpatient substance abuse. Actually, sorry, after in undergrad, I actually was offered a job at that place where I had an internship and worked there for several years and in different capacities. You know, I started in admissions and I worked in, you know, short term inpatient. I did a little bit of case management work. So I had an opportunity to sort of have a lot of different experiences, which was very valuable to me, but sort of similar to yourself. It is intense and it is hard work. That's not to take anything away from the hard work that the patients are doing, but yeah, of course. Yeah, but it, it, it was difficult. So I had an opportunity to make a subtle shift, which was to a, you know, I hate to say upscale, but that's a lot what a lot of these places are now, which is like a, a yeah. nicer version of like a private pay inpatient um, facility. So when I, you know, sort of saw the grounds and saw the, all the different services that was offered there. I was like, oh, like, this is really interesting. I, I wonder what type of help could be offered at this level, like what's what the differences are. So I jumped at the opportunity to to be in an environment like that. But that was also similarly, you kind of, well, I would say specifically for me, the reason that I things didn't work out there was, you know, I, I accepted that job, even though it was an hour plus commute. Yeah, that's hard. And, you know, and realistically, over time, you know, despite how how wonderful that place was, it just didn't work for me and my family. So, you know, transitioning 
further and further away from addiction, I ended up in a, a dual diagnosis program um, with teenagers, which was different and similar and, and fascinating <laughs> because you're getting kids at the sort of start of some of these problems that I saw in the inpatient units you know, the first yeah. times that they're having some of these experiences. And it's it's a great opportunity if they can make the changes at that age. But it's also really frustrating because a lot of times they have no interest in making changes at that age. Yeah, they don't have the maturity to kind of realize they need to. Just explain to anyone not in the medical field what dual diagnosis is. Yes, thank you. So dual diagnosis essentially means uh, a focus on both addiction treatment and mental health treatment. So for an example, a patient might be both abusing marijuana or alcohol and also be suffering from some type of mental health issue, whether that be depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, things like that. So the dual diagnosis is meant to address both of those things in tandem, which can be really difficult. But you know, it's also something that has to be recognized that if you're only treating one of those things, it's often, unfortunately, the other of those things that leads sort of both symptoms to come back. Yeah, often people are self-medicating with illicit substances yep. for an undiagnosed or unmanaged mental health condition. So you really need to kind of broach the, the problem from both sides. So what are some of the experiences that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so, you know, thinking about coming on your show today and sort of how I've gotten to where I am, both from a clinical perspective and just sort of why I wanted to do and why I am doing the work that I'm doing, you know, a couple experiences over the course of my career really came to mind. And actually, the first one is, you know, I mentioned the the sort of internship back in college. And the actually the, the interview that I went to that place for, I got lost on the way there, <laughs> showed up about 20 to 25 minutes late as a result. <laughs> and I didn't know where to park. So I ended up parking back, I think where most of the staff parked, but it was also happened to be right next to the patient's smoking area. They were all outside when I pulled up. Mm -hmm. So here I am, 20 or 21 years old, getting out of my wood paneled station wagon and <laughs> a, a bunch of men in this case who had been in treatment for a long time see young me coming out of my car. And let's just say a, a lot of comments were thrown my way. <laughs> Things that made me immediately question if both if I was in the right place and if I was, if I really wanted to stay there. Yeah. But what that experience also showed me and that I've really carried with me is that as a therapist, you are meeting your patients, you're joining with them in, in some cases at their worst time, you know, whether yeah. that's because they're angry or uh, resentful of the system or situation that's put them in the, the situation that they're in, angry at themselves, you know, and that's what we see depression and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, anxious, trauma, all this sort of stuff. And obviously, substance abuse, in, in my case, is where I was meeting them. And that anger, those comments is not, you know, picking on me. It's just like, they're, they don't, they're not happy where they are. Yeah. So this lashing out is not anything about me. It's, it's much more, you know, just the, the situation that they're in. So, so that experience, I was able to put put us to the side and you know accept the the opportunity to work at this place. And I had a lot more opportunities specifically there, one of which was the opportunity to give men's lectures. So mm. so again, I'm speaking to men who have, you know, 18 and up, who had been a lot of them in and out of treatment for 
years and years and as as often is the case with addiction yeah and here i am you know freshly out of college working at admissions and i'm being asked to talk to these men about things like intimacy and early recovery and you know vulnerability and you know uh the the 12 steps and that experience i, I have to imagine from sitting where they are looking at me trying to sort of educate or or you know, help train them and different skills that were going to help them in their recovery was like, must have felt like a joke. Like, who, right, who yeah. is this kid? Because I, I was a kid. Yeah. So again, you know, comments and, and sort of discouraging experiences, but at the same time, a lot of positive ones too. Because I think people, you know, even if they were in rough situations, I do think a lot of people appreciate the the work and the help that you're trying to provide. And I always got that sense as well, even if there were discouraging experiences alongside that. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point that even though you have not walked in the same shoes as a patient, whether it's a mental health or medical complaint, you can still relate to them and still provide them guidance. How have you found it that you have been able to relate to people, even though you have had a vastly different life experience? Because obviously for us, we in the medical world are trying to kind of break through these rough exteriors, but we don't have all of these tools that you have had going through a, you know, a therapist's sure. education. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough line to, to balance on because, you know, you have this sort of urge where you do want to relate. You do want to kind of show the people that you're trying to help that right. you either have similar experiences or you do to certain extents understand the things that they've been through. Mm -hmm. But then from sort of a training perspective, in some ways, my philosophy is, you know, it's not really my job as a therapist to be able to relate to your experiences. Just like it's not your doctor's job to have been through heart surgery himself to give you heart surgery. And obviously not <laughs> comparing myself to a heart surgeon. Yeah, no, that's a good example. But in the sense that it's it's my job to to sort of, you know, you are the expert on yourself, meaning you, the patient. So you are the expert on yourself. My job is to help ask you questions and get you processing and get you identifying skills or changes that you want to make to have better results. And that's that's the the training and therapy that I've had. You know, that's the the sort of now over a decade of experience of working with people, seeing what works and seeing what doesn't. You know, I can offer people that insight to a certain extent and that those skills, um, especially in, in certain skills based approaches where they can make changes successfully. And those are the things that I can offer people. Now, that's not to say that I don't also, you know, find opportunities for self-disclosure because I do think that's so powerful in, in establishing trust and building a therapeutic relationship. Yeah, you mentioned a therapeutic relationship, and that's an interesting concept when it comes to the medical world because in an emergency medicine, we did not, I personally did not do much self-disclosure at all because one, you had such a brief moment that you're with someone, but also you really didn't know them. Usually the situations could be, they could be fairly volatile, but now in my primary care role, I think patients look for that in a primary care provider. They want to know a bit about you. They want to know who you are as a person. And so they like to know that I have two cats and a dog and, sure. yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, what yeah, I did before. And you. there's more time and there's more relationships. So there's more self-disclosure. And I think as you go grow in your career, you learn how to read people and what they're looking for and how much they want a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and 
because as a therapist, you know, we we deal with things like transference and countertransference. So it's important yeah. to have that awareness that you're talking about of am I self-disclosing because I think it's going to be useful to the patient or because I'm getting too comfortable or because I'm, you know, um, sort of responding to something for my own emotional experience, which, you know, therapists are humans too. Sometimes right. we yeah. do that. Has there been any like cases or particular types of mental health issues that you have found to be hitting too close to home for you or, or something oh, that you're just like, this is sure. not something I'm really comfortable dealing with just because it hits kind of a nerve, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. And I've shared a little bit of this, a little bit about this on pop psych, you know, early in my career and, and even up to, you know, very recently trauma was always something that I felt was difficult for me to treat. And, and mm -hmm. part of it is because of this sort of feeling like I can't really understand someone that's experienced, you know, things like sexual abuse, mm. you know, war, you know, certainly things like war trauma, war PTSD. Yeah. You know, so I had a lot of, I should say, initial experiences with people who have had a trauma history. And and honestly, that that was something that was always something that I probably treaded very lightly around you know, only in, in parts because, you know, you sort of are unsure if the patient wants to quote unquote go there to talk about their trauma, to deal with the stuff that is around that, those right. issues. But over the past, I'll say year and a half to two years, I made it a point for me to take some really specific trainings in trauma. One of those things being EMDR. I love EMDR. I'm so, I'm all about it. I think it's great. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah. And I'm happy to explain that more if, if, yeah. uh, if there's some, some uh, misconceptions about it. But, but beyond just the training itself, you really get this familiarity and comfort with trauma because it, it sort of becomes this thing that, you know, we all have now. So I think previously I looked at trauma as these sort of very extreme experiences that, you know, were sort of that you had to tread lightly around. And now I think my more effective understanding of trauma is that it is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. We all, you know, trauma is subjective also yeah. in a lot of ways. No one can tell anyone else what is or is not traumatic for them. Yeah. So I think now with some of that experience, I've been able to work with people who have trauma histories. And, and I've, I, you know, using EMDR, I've found it to be really helpful for people to process their trauma in a useful way. So I, that's I've been really excited by the results that I've been seeing with that. I know you said you did not initially like trauma, but I would really like to talk to you about that because so part of the reason I started this podcast was because there is such a big problem with trauma and PTSD amongst first responders, particularly paramedics. And there's a really high suicide rate amongst physicians. Physicians have a higher suicide yep. rate than even military personnel. So being a being a veteran myself being a nurse practitioner and having worked in EMS, I hit like a lot of these, <laughs> these big benchmarks for being at risk for trauma. And I've just known a lot of people that have had PTSD and I can certainly relate to a lot of these things. So it's really under-recognized the amount of PTSD in the medical profession. And we need kind of specialized treatments for this. And they're finally starting to recognize that the trauma experience of a firefighter and a paramedic is vastly different from that than that of someone that, you know, went to Afghanistan because, oh sure you know, it's a daily trauma. These are more micro, well, they're not micro traumas. These are very significant traumas if someone's dying in front of you, but it's happening daily, weekly for 30 years as to 
opposed to a deployment, you know, in a different culture. This is within your own home. Yeah. Community, so yeah. It's in your own community and you're kind of seeing these terrors at home. And then you, you're supposed to go back to your own life immediately. And so I have been recommending EMDR for people uh, that I see in my own practice. And I think it's, it's great. There's a lot of really awesome studies that show that it's really successful. So can you explain what EMDR is for anyone that may want to look it up? Absolutely. And, you know, I'll preface that with saying it, it's going to sound weird as I'm talking about it. Yeah, but it totally does. I'm <laughs> happy to, to sort of go into detail. I always say that too. <laughs> yeah, because it is, it does sound weird. And, and the reason is even just listening to the name. So EMDR, it's called EMDR because if you heard what it was called fully, you might be very skeptical of it. Sounds like a type of music, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, EDM. Yeah, absolutely. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. So immediately we're thinking, well, what is that? That sounds weird. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I'll try to simplify as much as I can. You know, there is a certain understanding of what happens for us during REM sleep, rapid eye movement. And, you know, your eyes go back and forth when you're sleeping. That tends to be the time when you're dreaming. You know, the, and again, the sort of, this is the loose based science part of it. And that, you know, we have some understanding that during REM sleep, you know, we're sort of processing and, and making connections from the events of our day or of our week or of our life to feelings and thoughts that we associate with those experiences. Mm -hmm. So then EMDR tries to undo some of the associations that we've made, especially with the traumatic experiences that we might have had. So to give you an example, I just use the, the most common one, unfortunately, for a lot of people, which is car accidents, yeah. which is a, a huge um, source of trauma for people. So you get into a car accident, whether you're a driver or a passenger, you might form the association or the belief as a result of that, like, it's not safe for me to drive or the roads are not safe. And then as a result of that belief, you might be more avoidant of driving. You might have things like flashbacks or, or triggers or all sorts of emotional issues could happen as a result of those associations that you've made with that traumatic event. So EMDR... So the eye movement part of the treatment is either using the clinician's fingers or there's a light bar or um, there's other ways too. There's tapping and then there's um, like a headphones one thing, I think, too. Yeah, and there's like vibrating. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Holding. Handles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Handles, there's there's yeah. a lot of different ways to achieve this effect, but basically to have your awareness, whether that's your visual awareness or audio awareness or, or sensory awareness to kind of go back and forth and through that processing. And, and obviously this is interspersed with the patient sort of identifying what they're thinking and feeling throughout the course of this process. The goal it becomes to desensitize the person to the traumatic expense uh, experiences that they've had. So if thinking about your tra trauma is you know a 10 out of 10 on the disturbing scale. The goal through this process is to get it down ultimately to a zero. And to your earlier point, this is a treatment that's been shown in research to be pretty effective in doing just that. Yeah, it is. So um, I hope I summarized that effectively. I mean, obviously, there's some some more intricate aspects of the approach. But, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear that description, think of things like hypnotism and it's all this sort of wacky stuff. And and I admit I was skeptical of this at first for much the same reasons. But having the training, you're also forced to, or I should say required, to experience EMDR as a patient. 
Yeah. And for me, when I did that, you know, all these bells started to go off as like, wow, this does work. And even even for me, it was like very small stuff like, you know, money, anxiety connects to this, connects to that, connects to this, connects to that. And now I'm back at, you know, random events from, you know, college or even childhood. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, okay, now I can see the process that's happening for me on this one level, how this must be so effective and helpful for people on a a much more serious level. Yeah. So I learned about it initially in grad school because when you're in nurse practitioner school, they teach us psych, a lot of psych stuff too, you know, therapeutic communication and like family systems Mm -hmm. theory and kind of the basics of not uh, counseling, but just kind of some basic stuff because we do prescribe psych medication and we Mm -hmm. do a little bit while we're not actually doing therapy, there's a big component to, you know, getting a lot of this mental health stuff out and you have to diagnose some of it. So they talked about EMDR and I was like, oh, what is this? Obviously I'd worked in EMS for so long and then they did EMDR um, with some of us and (laughs) I did it. And obviously I have, I've had a lot of traumatic experiences through EMS and I had always been like yeah that's fine like whatever mm-hmm. I'm okay yeah <laughs> I'm yeah. okay mm-hmm. and then I was like oh oh yeah. my god <laughs> yeah. and previously you know when I I mean I had been through therapy in my life before for feeling down and, and everyone I think has and sure and I think yeah. whenever you and I'm very open about that because I think everyone should be and we should talk about this and but as I'm going through grad school and and you work in the medical field you kind of you learn the right answers a little bit, I felt like. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you, you know, you kind of, you're like, okay, great. Like, I know, you know what you want to hear. Let's get through this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and especially like if you've done this for a while, you put up really good walls and you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm in a great mood right now. I can give you all those answers. You can't pull that with EMDR. I thought I was, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do this in a class. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I can fake this. No, no, no. It really pulled some stuff out. And I was like, this is, this is really incredible. It's really helpful. So if anyone has some some trauma history, doesn't matter what it is. You didn't have to get blown up like Dan. You right. can you can you know have been in a car accident. You could have lost your dog. Yep. Anything. Any trauma. If it is traumatic to you, that is a trauma. Absolutely. And that's fine. Yep. And you know, find a therapist that is uh, certified. Or I don't know if there's a certification or yep, trained. There is. Yep. Mm-hmm. Trained in EMDR. And to that point, just a little bit of an aside, uh, also, if you, a lot of people with PTSD have nightmares, and I think people will come into my office and talk about, oh, I have all these nightmares, and they don't realize that there's medications that can help you with PTSD nightmares. Oh, sure. And there's not, and they're not just antidepressants. Right. So there are things that can help them go away while you're getting therapy and everything like that. And they don't have to be like, you know, Valium or Prozac or anything. Yeah. Yeah, They don't have to change your mood. They can just Mm -hmm. help with the nightmare. So go talk to your primary care or whomever about that. So that was my little rant. Um, (laughs) Any other experiences that you have that come to mind? Well, yeah. So, so, you know, the as I mentioned, being in um, inpatient, you know, you get to meet um, and work with people in that setting for a long period of time. And yeah. that I did really enjoy that that aspect of working in inpatient as I transitioned into outpatient clinics, you know, essentially IOP or partial hospitalization programs, you know, then the focus becomes, I would say, 90 percent group therapy, 10%, you know, individual treatment planning, medication planning, case management, uh, discharge planning type work. So getting away from that sort of individual work really 
I think forced me to recognize that that's what I love the most about, you know, the therapeutic process is really getting opportunity to develop that therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. and help people one-on-one. And that's not to say that group therapy is not effective. I think group therapy is actually hugely important for, for people if they get the opportunity to do that, that there's a lot of benefit in it. But for me, and I've, I've, I still have opportunities at times to to run groups and when I do I always jump at the chance but I really enjoy working individually with people and and over time sort of noticing that that I did want that opportunity as soon as I got it I I jumped at it you know I wanted the opportunity to establish a relationship with somebody you know identify the problems or symptoms that they want to address and really be able to dig into, you know, the things that are causing problems or, you know, the trauma, as we talked about, and and sort of start to establish that behavior change in that individual one-on-one basis. So that was something that really, I think, solidified, in a sense, what I'm good at and, and also mm-hmm. what I enjoy about, you know, the therapy work that I get to do. Yeah. What would you say to someone that's kind of starting out and wants to get into a career in mental health? What kind of would be like the big hallmark? Uh, piece of advice that you'd give them? Well, it's 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 required and for a good reason. It's get an internship, get as as you know, I'll say a much variety of experience as you can. Um, mm. I, I was really lucky to be able to do that, to work in and have experience in a lot of different therapeutic models, you know, inpatient, outpatient, partial hospitalization, substance abuse focused, non-substance abuse focused. So for me, having those variety of experiences really enabled me to sort of hone in both on what I enjoy in terms of work and also where I think my skills are are sort of best utilized. So um, for people, for example, in college or even high school, considering this future career, get as many experiences as you can, whether that's, you know, volunteering at shelters to be able to, to sort of see what that's like. That's a really good point. There's You'll see a lot of mental health at shelters and learning just to interact with that population and not be afraid of them and treat Mm -hmm. them like the humans that they are. I think that's so valuable. Yeah. So any any opportunity you can get to, as you said, sort of interact with people that are going through these situations is going to inform you about, you know, what's scary, what's challenging, and also Mm -hmm. what, what might be really exciting and what sort of what areas you feel like you would most want to be able to help people. So yeah, that's, that's a big part for me is that getting that experience in any way that you can. As you were kind of coming through your experience and as you were getting your training, were there any instances where you kind of learned something from the patients that you were, you were not expecting? You kind of had a, had a judgment or had a thought process and then they kind of imparted some wisdom on you when you thought you were going to impart some wisdom on them. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, actually, the, the a big one jumps out from the time when I worked in my, my first job, which is the, the long-term inpatient unit. You start to kind of get, I would say, general perspectives on things like substance abuse and the changes that people have to make. And and in some ways, the treatment is, is formulaic, you know, 12-step mm-hmm. meetings and, you know, family therapy when, when the family is willing, individual therapy, um, group therapy. So the, the formula can get repetitive in some ways. And I think the patients feel that too. There can, there can be these sort of like these frustration, frustrating moments that kind of happen for people where they feel like they just know themselves and they know they're not going to change. And I think that one of the biggest moments for me that, um, and I'll, that I'll never forget is I was in a group therapy session and a patient said this, and, and again, I'll never forget it. He said, 
somehow the the topic of like if there was a magic pill that kind of fixed everything like would you take it and just sort of like a funny weird group therapy conversation and just like very seriously this guy in the group kind of you know raised his hand and and said the magic pill is caring and i don't care and and it kind of shook everybody it's like wow um Okay, like let's unpack that, right? Because yeah. <laughs> that's that's there's a really, lot there. there. There's so much there, and I think there is so much truth in what he was saying, which is that whether it's whether it's therapy or substance abuse or mental health, you do have to want to get better to get better. Yeah, and I think the the sort of uh, nefarious part of this is that whether it be depression or anxiety or substance abuse, so often people either are are hopeless and feel like they can't get better so they don't seek help or because of the you know repetitive nature of treatment and substance abuse they feel like the help is not going to make a difference for them so the the magic pill being caring they feel like they stop caring they stop investing in you know the opportunity for them to make improvement so that I'll, i'll never forget that because i think you know, whether that's something that I look for as to a certain extent with patients or just recognize, obviously, sometimes you get patients who come in because they're being required to enter treatment. Like that is now something that to the extent that I can like check in with them, like how motivated are you? How much do you actually want to do work on the problems that you're having? Yeah. Yeah. I think we think we learn so many great lessons when we're new at this, that I think we kind of forget them sometimes, but every once in a while, I think, I think everyone has like those moments where you just, you learned something really profound from a patient that you weren't expecting. Uh, you learn these things that you didn't realize you had these, just these ideas about things when you're starting out. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, similarly working an inpatient, you, you see a lot of things, you know, <laughs> Um, yeah. as I'm, as I'm sure you have as well, you know, so you, you kind of get used to that sort of desperation place that people can be in. And I would say you kind of get numb to it. Just like, yep. You know, yeah. people just br- trying to bring drugs into treatment again. Yep. That, that happens yeah. you know, pretty regularly or smuggling pills or, you know, yep. all sorts of crazy things. And, and, and it's easy for us to say it's crazy, but for them, it's sort of just become this you know, this normal way of coping or of, of trying to cope. Yeah. They don't recognize that this is part of a disease process. This is just life. Right. You know, and, and they're not seeing that this is abnormal at all. And, and you have to kind of step back and realize what their perspective is. And then you can kind of help them, I think. And it, it's important for us to do that from the medical side, too, because we can't be casting dispersions on someone. That doesn't help them at all with their treatment just because we're not therapists. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough to see people in that in that place. But, you know, like I said, you know, up front, once you have seen someone there, it's like, OK, that's where they're at. And I want yeah. to meet them there if we're going to be able to make any progress. So right. being able to accept that as the beginning and taking whatever progress that person is willing to make from that standpoint. Yeah. So you do this all day. This is your career. You help people with their the most difficult parts of their life and their emotions. What is your self-care routine? How do you make sure you're looking after your own mental health? What are your tips for us? 
Sure. So I have what I imagine is sort of a unique one, but I think it's becoming, <laughs> at least from, from what I read, this is something that's sort of becoming a little bit more popular, and that's improv. I do, <laughs> I do short-form improv once a week. I perform on stage once a month. Um, I've been doing that for something like five or six or seven years now, and I love it. It activates the exact opposite part of my brain that goes to work, Yeah, where I have to be sort of as we said, sort of walls up and very um, analytical, very um, structured. And then I get to go to improv and turn <laughs> off all of that and just say the first words that come out of my mouth and into my brain and yeah. be fully emotional and be, you know, have whatever random interactions or relationships that come naturally from the scene. And I just love it. It's It's been such a a huge thing for me to find that that I can have that experience in some ways anytime I want. Now, now because I've also sort of developed skills and, and practices and routines that help me to to kind of decompress and, and activate that other part of my brain. So that's from the sort of like mental cognitive side, the thing that's helped me the most. Mm -hmm. And the other stuff is sort of, you know, stuff you'd, you'd hear more typically, you know, exercise. I play basketball a couple times a week. Family's a huge one. I have a three-year-old daughter. We, I, I make it a point to, I, I do not work at all on Wednesdays. So she's still young enough where she's not in school every day. So Wednesdays are just, we call data-daughter days. Aww. And we just do whatever we want. And that's been, I would say, hugely important to my self-care routine as well. Yeah, you have to have an outlet. And that's also why I've been doing the podcasting because it's been my Similar to the improv, I guess, because I do not plan these episodes, if anyone has not noticed. I kind of just talk to people and there's no like, oh, did I research your lab values? What medications are you taking? What interactions are there? It's just talking and I can swear <laughs> and we can just talk and there's no like, do I have to go on up to date and look this, you know, look at this now and what does this mean? And it's, it's the fun part of medicine that I sure. like the stories and the human part of it without the terror of, Oh my God, can I kill them right yep. now? Um, yeah. <laughs> unless maybe like the microphone falls on them, but I, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. And similarly, obviously for me, I also have a podcast and that's a you lot have a of podcast. Fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was actually just on your podcast and we talked about one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which was, I defended my girl nurse ratchet on there. I mean, for the most part, she had some questionable stuff, but I defended her and that episode's going to be coming out. But tell people about your podcast. Yes. So I host, I should say co-host the podcast Pop Psych 101. And it is a podcast with myself as a, as identified a licensed clinical social worker, therapist. And my co-host, um, Mike Graham is both my executive producer and a person who is willing enough and, and, and strong and a person who's open about his own struggles with mental illness. So we talk about mental illness as it's portrayed in popular culture, so books, movies, television, and how accurate that portrayal is and sort of what people can take away from these portrayals. You know, what lessons can we learn? How would these people be you know, helped in the real world, all these sorts of really useful perspectives while also trying to have fun. We were talking about, you know, movies. We talked about movies like Fight Club. And um, as you mentioned, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the episode that we just put out this week was about Spider-Man. So we, we do try to have yeah. some lightness with it, which I think is important because being able to talk about these serious issues as mental health issues that are serious, 
but to be able to talk about them in a light way where they're also just it's you know our brain is just another part of our body that sometimes needs you know a checkup or you know needs some yeah. some some help yeah, yeah yeah so that's that's pop psych 101 and we are something like eight or nine episodes in and having a blast so we're we were very appreciative of you being willing to come on and that episode drops on monday yes which will actually be the same day that this episode drops fantastic so, so i'll be if all you're listening over the place. to this episode <laughs> Go and find Pop Psych 101. You guys are on all the same apps and everything that this is, and Pop Psych 101 on Facebook. Yep. And is there a specific Twitter and Instagram? At Pop Psych 101. We were lucky enough to grab all the handles, all the same thing. Yep. That makes it so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's And it's great because I think a lot of people mostly see mental health portrayed through the media. Yes. They are not necessarily going and interacting with healthcare providers much less mental health providers. So having an outlet or a medium that talks about, is this right or is this not right? It's so valuable because people are going to see Fight Club and go, oh my God, is that really what dissociative identity disorder is right. like? like? Are there people out there like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they're commenting on Facebook threads. They're like, well, I saw this movie, so this is what it's like. And, and you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, we hope to be sort of both educational and uh, entertaining. So we try to make it as, as beneficial for people as we can. Yeah, I, I've been really enjoying it. So I think everyone else will too. Well, thank you for taking your time out of uh, Daughter Wednesday to <laughs> late at night after she's been in bed to speak with me and talk about mental health. This has been this has been awesome. My pleasure, Christine. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And you know, I'm happy to come again anytime to talk about mental health. Awesome. Well, if anyone wants to get in touch with me or the podcast, again, our Facebook and Instagram are Antidotes Podcast. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP. And you can always send us an email. I say us. You can always send me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. And please give us those reviews. Give us some boosts on iTunes so more people can hear this awesome message about mental health and more conversations from more healthcare providers from around the world. So thank you guys for listening. I will see you next week. 